So every second of every day, you are saying yes to something. Every time you do something, whether or not you say it out loud or not, you are saying yes to that thing. Every piece of food you put into your body, every chew you're saying yes. Every click, every tap, every scroll, and every swipe on social media, you're saying yes. Every time you open up Netflix and hit play, you're saying yes. When you show up to hang out with somebody, you're saying yes. When you go to work in the morning, you're saying yes. When you click buy now or insert your card at the point of sale, you're saying yes. When you accept a job offer, you're saying yes. And when you walked through the door of the auditorium this morning, each of you said yes to gathering with the people of God. Now, while we're also saying yes in those moments, we're also saying no, right? In that moment, we're saying no to everything else. You could have gone and done a bunch of different things on this beautiful morning today. You could have gone hiking. You could have gone um, riding your bike. You could have um, slept in, gotten brunch. There's a lot of different things you could have done. But when you said yes to being here right now, you said no to everything else. See, every, so we recognize in this, this binary yes and no that every choice we make has with it an opportunity cost. So when we say yes to something, we realize to, to say no, we're also missing out on whatever that other thing is. Now, sometimes the cost is really low and inconsequential. So if, for example, I say yes to a burger for lunch today, then it means I'm saying no to tacos, right? But it's not a big deal. I'll just have tacos tomorrow, right? Unless I go to Burger King, I've heard that they have tacos now, which is just weird to me. Okay, it's not worth it. There's an opportunity cost, right? Totally not worth it. But sometimes saying yes to one thing and no to other things comes with a weight. And that's often why we sit in these moments of indecision when we're faced with one of those opportunities because we feel the cost involved by saying yes to one thing and also no to another. So, so maybe you're job hunting and you've got a couple of different offers. Saying yes to one job means you're saying no to a different one. Saying yes to a particular spouse also means saying no to everybody else, doesn't it? So sometimes people will go, I just don't know. If I'm saying yes today, what do I know about what's going to happen tomorrow? Because every choice we make is embedded with these opportunity costs. And we know these costs add up over life. Our decisions head us down a certain pathway that over time we find ourselves charting out the course of our life. And over time, these choices begin to reveal the person that we are, right? You can look at someone's choices over the course of their life and you can tell them what they value, what they prioritize, and what they believe. Warren Buffett once said, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. What is Buffett saying? He's saying that life is full of decisions to make and very successful people have learned the wisdom to say yes to the right things and no to almost everything else. There's, this, there's a singular focus. There's a drive. 
Today, in Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon has another life lesson for us. If we've been working our way through the book of Proverbs, we're in that first half, and every, every chapter or so, there's this another life lesson. You can imagine Solomon bringing his, his children near and say, hey, I've, I've got wisdom that I want to impart to you. And today, he's going to teach us the wisdom of saying yes to the most important things and how to say no to everything else. He says, at the end of the day, there really are just two ways to live. One path ends in life and significance, and the other path ends in death and insignificance. He's going to teach us the wisdom to know the difference between these two paths to ensure that we go down the way of wisdom that leads to life. This morning, Proverbs chapter four breaks down into three major sections. First, Solomon is going to teach us about the importance of our decisions. And he's gonna say wisdom begins with a decision, that you have a choice to make. In the second section, Solomon's gonna teach us the wisdom that every life, your life, my life, has a final destination. There's an an, an end to it, a terminus. And there's this destination of our life. And as we live our life and make costly decisions, the wise person will live with the end in mind. Where am I headed? And finally, in the last section, Solomon's going to teach us the wisdom of diligence. See, we live in a world that is just plagued by distractions and detours. And the wise will learn how to guard their heart with all diligence so that they can stay the course. So as we work through this passage, we're going to see the wisdom of decision, destination, and diligence. Let's start together in verse one. We'll have the words on the screen. I also encourage you to use the Bibles around you. Get used to holding the word of God in your hands and making your way. Learn the Bible, where things are. Here we go, Proverbs 4, verse one. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Like I said, we're starting, we're, we're in the, 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 uh, the first half of Proverbs chapters one through nine are a collection of about a dozen different life lessons. When you get beyond chapter nine, that's where you have kind of the one-off um, pithy statements, right? These first nine chapters are kind of Solomon saying, let me, let me give you some life lessons so that you have a framework to understand the rest of the Proverbs I'm going to give you. And these are, these are meant to be, to, to be seen as like a parent-child relationship. There's, a, there's an intimacy of relationship. In this case, it's a father speaking to his sons. And as a father, think about it. He cares about them. It's not abstract, it's not impersonal, it's not arbitrary. He's going, I have a lot invested in you. You have my very blood in your veins. I care about what happens in your life. I'm invested personally. And one of my greatest hopes as a father is to see you successful in life. So I want you to to gain these good precepts. I want you to, to learn the wisdom. And most importantly, he hopes that they would become faithful in following the Lord. Because the beginning and the foundation of all wisdom, it was his very first lesson was to fear the Lord. Proverbs chapter one, verses one through seven, he says the beginning of wisdom, the foundational starting point, the thing that makes everything else I'm going to say make sense is fear the Lord. And remember, we define that like this, that to fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority. He is your deepest love and he is your foundational trust. And when you begin there, you can begin to build a life of wisdom. 
So he opens up and he says, my sons, hear, be attentive. See, he's not saying, I I hope that your ears can hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. He assumes his sons can hear his words. This is really a plea for obedience. He's calling his sons to act on what he says, not merely be able to repeat the words back to him. Now look at verse three. He says, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, see, don't miss this. Solomon is passing on the wisdom that he learned from his father. So he, he brings grandpa in. He's like, hey, when my dad used to sit me down, just like I'm doing with you right now, I, I had to listen to him. See, one of the beautiful realities of wisdom is that it can be passed on from one generation to the next. And see, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, everybody can pass along wisdom. And in fact, if wisdom isn't transmitted from one generation to the next, it gets lost. And it's tragic because hard-fought lessons of wisdom shouldn't be forgotten or forsaken. They should be passed on to future generations so that they can benefit from those hard-fought lessons of wisdom. So he tells his sons, sons, my father told me the same thing that I'm telling you today. And one day, Lord willing, you are going to pass this wisdom on to your children. Verse four, let's hear what grandpa had to say. He told Solomon, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. And she will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. So here's the lesson. Let me pack it all, package it all together. He says, decide in your heart that you will value the wisdom of God above everything else. If you had to summarize what he's saying in those first few verses, it's decide in your heart that you will value the wisdom of God above everything else. See, the heart, he, 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 he brings in the heart and he says, listen, the heart is the center of a person. It's, 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 it's where our thoughts are, our desires are, it's where our will is. It's, you can think of the, the, the Hebrew concept of the heart is, is like the soul. It's the inner person. It's, it, it's where um, all of our decisions are made. And that's why Solomon says, it, it, if you're going to value wisdom, it's got to be in the, in the core, in the center of who you are. That's, that's why Solomon says, let your heart hold fast to my words. Decide in your heart that you want the wisdom of God. Because if you don't decide to value the wisdom of God, then you're going to choose to value some other kind of wisdom. See, what he's getting at is like, when we talk about the wisdom of God, this is how we've defined it over the course of this series. We've said the wisdom, wisdom is, according to God, the skill of godly living so that a life of lasting value is produced. And we've recognized that wisdom has all kinds of various skills and expertises and, and, and competencies that, that understand how life really works and to achieve a life, to achieve these results that honor the Lord. 
And the reality is, is that everybody is living by some system, some standard of wisdom, by some value system, some structure of wisdom. Everybody has a general framework for how they decide what it means to be successful in life, what it means to, uh, to, to be faithful in life, what, what is good and what is, what is true. Everyone has a system of evaluating what is good, true, and valuable and beautiful. Everybody does. The good, the true, and the beautiful. We, we all operate in these categories. See, the good, the true, and the beautiful will define your morals. See, you, you have an understanding of what is good and what is wrong. You have some value moral system. You also have some understanding of reality, how you gauge whether something is true or not. And you also have some system to, 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 to discern what is desirable, what, what will bring you pleasure? What will bring you contentment? And philosophers throughout time have, have kind of summarized this as the good, the true, and the beautiful. Everybody in here has some system to understand what those three things are. And then when you've decided what that is, you pursue them. Whatever your system for evaluating the good, the true, and the beautiful, that's the wisdom that guides your life. And Proverbs is saying is the wisdom of God should be what defines what is good, true, and beautiful. And so Solomon is telling his sons, hold fast and embrace the wisdom that begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. Because if you do, you will live. You'll be guarded, you'll be exalted, and you'll be honored. All four of those things were mentioned in these verses. That if you value wisdom, you'll, be, you'll live, truly live. You'll be guarded You'll be exalted, which means you'll be lifted up and you'll be honored. Resolving to pursue the wisdom of God is not some arbitrary moral code or philosophy. It's a life that's lived according to the design of God, our creator. It recognizes that God has designed and situated everything and he's in the best possible position to tell us what is good, true, and beautiful. And when you live according to his design, that's when you begin to thrive and flourish. So in verse seven, he says this, he calls his sons to make a decision. He says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever else you get, make sure you get wisdom. Whatever else you get. Another faithful way to translate these Hebrew words is the way the NIV does. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it cost you all you have, get understanding. What Solomon is telling his sons is that wisdom isn't hard to find. It's just hard to pursue. It's out there. It's available. Wisdom cries out in the streets. You don't have to go looking for it. It's not hard, but it will cost you. And so he, he, um, he puts the pursuit of wisdom right at the core of who you are, in the heart, saying, if you really want it, if you really desire it, you will go after it. See, there will be times, sons, when you see something else that at first might appear more valuable than wisdom. There will be times like it seems like it's not worth the effort, that it's not worth the cost, that it's not worth what you have to give up to get it. But he emphatically tells his sons, though it costs you all you have, get wisdom. Because every time it's worth it. Say yes to wisdom and say no to anything else that keeps you from getting wisdom. Because it's not that wisdom is hard to find, it's that it's hard to pursue. So let me try to illustrate this in terms of physical fitness. Is physical fitness hard to find? 
Is there a lack of, uh, like, do we just not know where the gym is? Are there no gyms in Waltham, right? Wherever you live, are, there, are, there, are, there, are you in a gym wasteland? Is it that the, the internet is void of any information on physical health and the benefits of exercise? So if you Google physical fitness, does it say zero results? We just can't, I can't find anything. No. Is YouTube lacking workout videos? No. It's not even a matter of money. Did you know? It's 100% free to go on a jog. Does it cost you anything? No one's going to go, hey, sir, what are you doing? Are you jogging? Don't you know that that costs $10 an hour? No. You're free to jog anytime you want to. See, it's not that physical fitness is hard to find. It's that it's hard to pursue. See, every time the alarm goes off to get up just a bit earlier to work out, you have a choice to make. You're either going to say yes to the workout or yes to sleeping in. Every time you're faced with a a choice to get the extra helping of dessert, you have a choice to make. You're going to either say yes to the extra cookie or yes to a more balanced diet. But there's a cost involved, right? Sleeping in feels great, doesn't it? The extra cookie, that's so good. Who doesn't want it? But wisdom says, do you know what's more valuable? It's not that wisdom is hard to find. It's that it's hard to pursue. See, here's the reality of our decisions. When we make a decision, you're you're deciding what you want to be and to do, and so you act accordingly. See, your decisions don't make you. You, you, you. You are a person that makes decisions. Who we are decides what we do. You are a human being before you are a human doing. Another way to say it is you do who you are. All the choices, all the decisions, all the actions you make flow from who you are. That's why Solomon says the decision to be made is in the heart, at the core of who you are. You have to decide who you want to be and then act accordingly. And if you make a decision, you say, hey, look, I'm going to start doing this. And you said it out loud. This is what I'm going to do. We find out if that decision we made in the heart was a real decision or not because of what you actually follow through and do. If you make a decision that you're going to start working out, but you never do, we find out that it wasn't a real decision. It was just a lie we told ourselves to feel good. So Solomon's saying, what will it be? What will you decide? Which system of wisdom will you prize above all other systems? Look at me. Right now, the reality is you are operating with some system of wisdom right now. Every single person does. It's like a computer. Every computer has an operating system that works in the background to allow the apps and programs to work. You you, you can't work those programs without the operating system that makes sense of them. Okay? And if you're a tech person, you're like, well, actually, hang with me here. Okay? None of us know DOS and, you know, all right? So what is your operating system? What is your wisdom system? Is it the wisdom of God or is it something else? You can't go, well, I don't have one. No, you do. Maybe it's just your own personal version, but you have a system by which you make every single decision in your life. Delayed decisions, even indecision about which one you wanna do are themselves decisions. And like all decisions, they come with a cost. The life of wisdom begins with a decision 
Will we value the wisdom of God above all else? That's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. Solomon says, look at the destination of your life. Look with me at verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. So again, he says, hear and accept these words. If you hear the words and you don't internalize them and you don't implement them into your life, they're of no use or value. Not only do we have to hear the words, but we have to process them and internalize them. Verse 11, he says, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. The father's reminding his sons that he's taught them these things before, that he has taught them the way of wisdom, that he's even tried as best as he can to lead the way. And what he's saying is that you don't find wisdom by chance or by accident. You find it by catechism. That's just a fancy word that means good teaching, good instruction, where someone says, I know something more than you, and let me help train you. Let me help give you the information that you lack, and let me show you the way. We find wisdom by good instruction and godly example. That's why the scriptures are full of exhortations to parents to train their children in the way of wisdom. You know, some of these philosophies out there, it's like, well, just let the kids kind of figure it out on their own. That's the worst advice in the entire world. They have no idea what they're doing. We have to train them. We have to show them. I'm not saying we, we, we force our our will on them and say, well, you're going to be this profession or you're going to do this. But we give them wisdom. We give them good instruction to build their life. And even as the family of God, Christians, we are called to exhort our brothers and sisters in the faith so that we all grow in wisdom together. You are, in fact, your brother and sister's keeper. This is a family thing. It's a communal thing. We don't just stumble into wisdom by accident, but we do it together as we follow good examples in front of us and as we try to be good examples to those behind us. No matter where you are in your faith right now, there is somebody in this church that you are further along in your maturity that you can help that person who is newer to faith or less mature in faith and say, come follow me as I follow Christ. That's everywhere. And then there are people in the church who says, look, I'm I'm a little further along. You come, follow me as I follow Christ. We don't stumble into this thing by accident. It's done with intentionality. So the father goes on and he continues to speak wisdom to his son and he gives him this illustration to help take the lesson from this, the, the, the abstraction into the concrete. He says, boys, there are two paths in life. One is the way of wisdom. One is the path of righteousness. And the other is the way of evil, the path of the wicked. Life is compared to this, this path, this, this journey. It's a, it, it's a metaphor that's been used in just about every kind of philosophy because we think about the, 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 the reality of, of taking steps on a journey one step at a time and we live life one moment at a time. Every decision, every action we make takes us somewhere. Someone once said these words, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Walking down any path has this cumulative effect, good or bad, on our lives. Every day, we take steps down a path and they don't seem to go very far, right? You can't travel that far in one day. But days turn to weeks, turn to months, turn to years, turn to decades, and before you know it, you've lived a life. And you're further down the path and all along the way, 
we've been changed and we've been influenced by whatever path we've chosen. So Solomon says, boys, life, it's like a journey. And right now, you are at a fork in the road. You have to choose which pathway you're going to go down. And he says, look, next to each path is a sign and it tells you what to expect along the way. So he says, look, let's, let me first tell you about this pathway of wisdom. Verse 12, when you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. Solomon says, look, if you go down the path of wisdom, you're going to walk and your steps, they're not going to be hindered. They're not going to be hampered. Even when you run, you're not going to stumble. Now, this doesn't mean that life will be easy, that you'll never fall, that you'll never experience hardship. Remember, we have to read the Bible as a collective whole. Proverbs are, uh, they're they're, they're not promises or guarantees. They're principles about how life generally works. But here's what it does mean. It does mean, generally speaking, if you will choose the path of wisdom, it will put you in the best possible position to flourish and thrive. You're not going to unnecessarily trip over your own foolishness. That's what he's saying. You're not going to be tripped up by major sinful falls. You're not going to be restricted by the addictions of your own sin. And the suffering that you do experience along the way, God actually uses that to strengthen you and to shape your character so that for the believer, no amount of suffering is ever wasted. It actually furthers you along the path. It makes you more able and ready to, to, to do and to be the person God has created you to be along the way. On the path of righteousness, suffering, suffering and struggles are never wasted. God uses them to develop us and to chisel us and the person into the image of Christ. Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. Paul says not only that, but as Christians, we can even rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul's saying is the way of wisdom, it's marked by the love of God being poured into your, into your life and that all of life, when you follow him, both blessing and struggle leads you to him. That's what's on the sign on the path of wisdom. Now look what's on the path, uh, on the way of evil. Verse 14, Solomon says, don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. For on this path, they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They're robbed of sleep unless they've made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Before even describing what happens on this path, Solomon says six times not to go down the path. Did you see it? He says, don't enter, don't walk, avoid it, don't go on it, turn away, pass on. He's like, I'm out of words. (laughs) Can I say it any more clearly? Is there anything that you don't understand about not going down this path? There's no room for misinterpretation. Like, well, I thought when you said don't enter, what you meant, what? He's like, there's no other way to say it. Stay away from this path. There's no wiggle room. Don't even think about setting a foot on it, much less setting a foot on it, because on this path, you can expect evil and darkness. He says, there's people on this path who are so addicted to their sin, they can't even sleep until they've plotted evil. 
And when day breaks, they consume and drink until they become drunk on wickedness and violence. The way of evil and the path of wickedness is a path that ends in certain death. And so by setting those two pathways up, he's implicitly asking, which path do you want to go on? Do you really want to go down this path? And then he brings it all to a summary and says, but listen, verse 18, the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And the way of wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Here's the lesson. Every life has a destination. So live with the end in mind. The path of righteousness, it's like the light of dawn. When you're on that path, it gets brighter and brighter. It leads to a super bright future. But the path of of the wicked, the way of evil is like deep darkness. It just gets darker and darker. And those who walk down it will stumble and fall constantly. Solomon says we face two alternatives, the way of wisdom or the way of evil, the path of life or the path of death. And I think one of the great temptations facing you and I right now in this moment is that we will try to say, gosh, that seems so restrictive, just just two ways. No, isn't there a third way? Isn't there a third way that kind of avoids the two extremes? Like a compromise, that's a good thing, right? Ray Ortland is helpful here. He says this, in our hobbit-like timidity, if you don't know what a hobbit is, I don't have time to catch you up on that. (laughs) In our hobbit-like timidity, we prefer a compromise. We might prefer three ways to choose from. A rotten life of folly on one extreme, a super-duper life of wisdom over at the other extreme, but in the middle is a half-decent life of mediocrity that we don't mind settling for. See, we might think we can avoid the biggest pitfalls of the life of evil. You heard all those things, you go, listen, there's a lot wrong with that. I I can probably avoid the big, nasty falls. At the same time, I want to get some of the blessings of of the way of wisdom, but I don't want to be sold out. I don't want to go all the way over there because there's some stuff on the way of evil that I kind of like. I don't want to miss out. Got that FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. So I don't want to fully commit to either path. And so I think maybe I can navigate the best of both worlds, have a little fun in the sinful world and have some of the blessings of the way of wisdom. And we can flirt and taste a bit of the life of sin. And then at the right moment, I'll know when to take the bypass and cut back onto the path of wisdom and join up with everybody else. But God is saying that's not how this works. There are only two ways. That's why you have to decide in your heart, does God actually know what he's talking about? Is he lying to us? Is he trying to trick us? Or is he like a loving father telling us how the world that he made actually works? There are no bypasses. There are no shortcuts to get back on to the path in the nick of time. There are two ways. One is a life of deep darkness and it ends in disaster. And the other is a faithful life that ends with a bright future. You cannot cheat your way into the kingdom of God. Now, these aren't threats. These aren't arbitrary rules driven by fear to force your hand. This is not some guilt trip so that you uh, submit. These are warnings. 
there's a building in Waltham at 74 Rumford Avenue. Avenue. It was built in 1897 and was the home to the O'Hara Waltham Dial Company. Since that time, it's changed hands several times, but the last 40 years, it's sat vacant. You can drive by it today. It's overgrown with weeds. The windows are broken. You can start to see the roof has begun to cave in. It's opened up, and there's a tower there that's leaning precariously. And it's fallen into such disrepair, it's been condemned as an unsafe structure, and it's now marked for demolition. But they can't demo it yet because there's lead, arsenic, antinomy, and radium all in the structure. So they got to get rid of all of that before they bring it down. It's fallen into such disrepair, it's marked for demolition. And if you walk by there now, there's an eight-foot uh, fence with that barrier screen protection and all, every like six feet, there's a sign that reads, warning, lead, arsenic, antimony, radium in the soils, no trespassing. And if you look above the sign, all over are these white signs with big red X's on it. Like there, there, it shouldn't be left to misinterpretation of like what happens if you go beyond this fence. Now, nobody walking by goes, hey, I think I might like to live there. That seems like a great place to raise my family. Could get a good night's sleep in there. Nobody. No one looks at the building and says, now that's where I want to live, right? Solomon says, decide in your heart that you will value the wisdom of God above everything. There's a sign up right now in front of you. One that has the same warnings as 74 Rumford Avenue saying, don't go down here. It's poisonous. It's treacherous. The roof will fall on you and you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Or there's a path that leads to life. Will you go down that path? Decide in your heart that you'll value the wisdom of God above everything. Realize every life has a destination. Live with the end in mind. Finally, let's look at the last few verses to see a life of wisdom that's marked by diligence. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. For a third time, the father has said, be attentive. Incline your ear. Lean in to what I'm saying right now. Keep them in your sight. Store them in your heart. It's a safe place for wisdom. Keep your heart with all vigilance because from it, everything flows. We've talked about this. All decisions, all the, everything flows from the heart. See, the heart, remember, it's not just the place of emotion. It's the place where you store your foundational trusts, your deepest commitments, your highest priorities, your deepest loves. And from that place, everything in your life flows. So what does Solomon mean by keeping your heart with all vigilance? This means the diligent and constant attention to put sin to death and cultivate communion with God. If I could summarize what is the Christian life, it's those two things. It's this active and constant uh, 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 decision to put sin to death. Not put it in a cage, not tame it. You can't do any of those things. But in Christ, you do have the power to put sin to death. You can give it the death blow but nothing else. You can't tame it or contain it, but you can kill it. 
And at the same time, Christians are called to cultivate, to stir up the affections, to build into your life the things that that excite your uh, affections for the Lord. We must be proactive. This isn't something we can neglect and assume will happen passively. So the lesson here is this. Diligence in faith requires constant attention to put sin to death and cultivate communion with God. I've tried to package this together in five things. This requires five things. First, daily confession. Daily confession. Every day, we should consider the posture, the motives, the conditions of our hearts, the actions of our hands, and ask, what was driving me today? What was leading my decisions? And listen, keep a short confessional. That's why this is daily confession. Coming to the Lord at the end of the day as a beloved son or daughter and saying, Lord, here's where I failed. Here's where I loved other things. Here's where I was distracted. Confess your sin to the Lord. This keeps you actively course correcting so that you stay on track. Did you know when you drive, you are subconsciously actively course correcting the whole time. If you were to keep the steering wheel completely straight, you'd end up on one side of the curb or the other or into a ditch or worse. You're actively course correcting. As it goes this way, you, you, you balance it. You don't even think about it. Most of the time you drive somewhere, you're like, how did I even get here, right? It's so like subliminal, but you're constantly course correcting. Daily confession is a constant course correction to stay on the path of God. Number two, seasonal introspection. See, where daily confession is confessing our sins to the Lord uh, on, on a frequent basis, this is short, this is, this is ongoing. Seasonal introspect, introspection means this. Take time every season and every year to evaluate your progress. Course correction, daily confession keeps you on the path. Introspection seasonally allows you to track your progress. Hey, how am I doing? How has it gone? Because you can't track progress or growth on a daily basis. I don't see the growth of my children every day. I notice they are growing when their shoes don't fit anymore or when their shirt becomes like a tankini. That's why, oh, wait, what happened? When we first bought you that shirt, it looked like you put on dad's shirt and now it's too short. Got a time to pass it on to somebody else, right? You can't track growth and progress daily. You gotta have a little bit more of a window. That's why you have to do seasonal introspection. Seasons and years give us enough perspective to see your growth over time. And that's when you can make the big decisions about what you need to do to do some major course correction. Number three, spiritual disciplines. Often people come and go, hey, pastor, how do I grow in Christ? And I go, I got two things for you. Read your Bible and pray. And they're like, that's it? That's it? I'm not that smart, man. You know why? Because God has given us ordinary means of grace to do extraordinary things in your life. There is no magic bullet. There is no infomercial where if you just buy this one thing today, it's going to change your life. The Christian life is sustained by the regular and ordinary means of Bible study and prayer. And again, it costs you nothing. I'm giving you a free Bible today and you can pray anytime, anywhere. You don't have to open up your wallet for it at all. It's ordinary and regular. We read God's word so that our minds and our hearts can be renewed. And we pray to the Lord to confess our sin, ask for more grace, and build a relationship with him. Number four, invested community. Simply put, we need each other. You cannot do the Christian life on your own. Isolation only encourages hiding in sin. Mold and sin grow in the dark. You gotta turn on the light to expose it. Everybody has blind spots. There are things in my life I cannot see. Why? They're blind spots. 
You can't see them. By definition, I need other people. Just like when you're driving, hey, can I get over? I can't see there. Yes, you can get over. It's clear. You need people checking your blind spots, which means you have to be willing to allow somebody to speak into your life. And then you've got to be willing to have the courage to speak into somebody else's life. Everyone needs encouragement. Everyone has blind spots. Everyone needs an example, and everyone needs to be an example because the Christian life is a communal one. Number five, look what he says in verse 24. He says, put away from you crooked speech and devious talk from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left and turn your foot from evil. These last verses are quick imperatives. It's like Solomon's coming to the end of his lesson. He's like, I'm just gonna throw it all out here, the whole kitchen sink. He gives us some imperatives to follow as we guard our hearts. He says, keep watch over what you say. Don't entertain deception. Don't believe the lie that little bitty subtleties and lies can, can, can chart an easier course for your life. He says, keep your eyes forward, your gaze straight. This speaks to the reality that there are constant distractions, constant attraction trying to pull you away. Remember, that's what the, the way of the, of the evil wants to do. It wants to pull you into their path. Solomon says, keep your eyes fixed forward. See, if you start to gaze longingly at the things on the side for too long, your heart starts to be drawn to them. See, the longer you look at something, the more attractive you find it to be. That's why we're supposed to look longingly at Christ. Cultivate the good things. Set your eyes there. Author Greg McEwen says it well. He says, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. Let me read that again. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. Let me just be blunt. Most everything we talk about and get fixated on is completely unimportant. It's just not. Now, usually given enough time, we look back on it and go, oh yeah, that wasn't that important. That little toy I wanted is garbage now. I don't even care about it, right? That thing I thought was so important, I had to have, I got it. And guess what? Still not fulfilled. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. What's he saying? Almost everything is unimportant and not worth your time and energy. And yet we're so easily distracted and diverted from the path that God has for us. Guarding the heart by carefully living means this, giving attention to what you say, giving attention to what you look at, and giving attention to where you walk. And for the believer, the best way to do that is to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Look what the writer of Hebrews says, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews just dropped some gospel wisdom into your lap. As we run the race of life down the path of righteousness, on the way of wisdom, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You lay aside every weight and every care and concern of this world. We lay aside every sin that is trying to drag us down and we run with endurance. And where are we to look? We look straight ahead to Jesus. Why? He's the one that went before us. He's the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way of wisdom. 
He is the path of righteousness. He founded our faith because he counted it joy to endure the pain and the shame of the cross in our place. And after he defeated death in the grave, he ascended to to the right hand of God the Father. And now he says, as you run your race, endure to the end, be faithful, and keep your eyes fixed on him. So you have to decide that you want to follow Christ on this way of wisdom. You gotta make a decision. Sheldon Van Auken, who was an American author, friend of C.S. Lewis, wrote a memoir called A Severe Mercy. And what's beautiful about his book is that he, he, he articulates the, the, the moment in his life when he, when he decided to, to follow Christ. And, and it didn't come immediately for him. His wife had become a Christian and he, he struggled with that indecision for a long time. And after years of indecision, one day, he made a deliberate choice to follow Christ. Here's what he said. One can only choose a side. So I, I now choose my side. I choose beauty. I choose what I love. But choosing to believe is believing. It's all I can do. Choose. I confess my doubts. And as my Lord in Christ uh, to enter my life, I do but say, Lord, I believe. Help though my unbelief. He's saying, I don't have everything worked out. Still got doubts. Still got questions, but I have to make a decision of where I'm going to go. Who am I going to follow? Following Christ doesn't mean all your questions and doubts are worked out. It does mean that despite having them worked out, the choice to follow Jesus has been made. And now with faith, you wrestle through those doubts. And after that decision is made to follow Jesus, if you've made that decision to follow him, you fix your eyes on him as you guard your heart with all diligence and live with the end in mind, knowing that at the end, there is ever-increasing joy, a super bright future for you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Scripture today, this gospel wisdom that teaches us what to value, tells us what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. And all of those are summed up in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ.